the original MythBuster. So let's set this up a little bit here. Paul is going to move from from kind of the blatant and blaring sins of the Gentiles or the pagans and their, their godless culture to a little bit more refined sin. This is a little bit harder to identify, maybe the, the respectable sins of religion. But at the core, this is something Jesus targeted as well, right? Self-righteousness. It is a toxic poison that will send you to hell in a heartbeat. Self-righteousness is something that all of us need to be very careful with. We have, as it were, in us an inner Pharisee, even as believers, that would seek to, to jump up and grab our soul and steer us into making much of ourselves and our works and looking there instead of to Christ alone with our confidence. Self-righteousness has no place in the worship of the Christian, and it certainly has no place in the salvation of the Christian. So, let's bust a few myths together this morning. I'm calling these myths of the moral. Myths of the moral. It's hard to say myth in the plural form. Have you noticed that? I, I feel like I have a lift, right? Uh, the myths of the moral. So, I, I phrased it in a way that I don't have to say myths constantly through the sermon. Let's begin with myth number one. I am a good person. I am a good, to be clear, it's a myth, okay? Let's see why. I am a good person. Verses 1 through 3. I want to pick up with the last verse of chapter 1 where we left off. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, let's look at the flow. Again, original uh, language here, no chapter division. So look at his flow. He just moves right in. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. He's beginning to debate with this, this, uh, this theoretical arguer who would say, oh, but Paul, hold on now. We have an excuse. And what we find here is this would be a Jewish audience who would, who would seek to argue back, well, hold on, Paul, that may be true of the pagans and the Gentiles, but, but we, the Jews, we're, we're, we're not like that. The old man targets that. You have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, is Paul suggesting that there is never a place to make a judgment call about what sin is? What is right or wrong? Is that what he's saying here? Absolutely not. No way. What he's saying here is the problem is hypocritical judgments. To say the sin of that person is horrific and terrible and it totally just it fires me up and I get so angry at that well I do the same thing myself now it might have a little different shade to it. it might be a little bit more sanctified a little more you know religious but the fact of the matter is is this this hypocritical judgment when I point my finger and say look at those sinners I've got three fingers pointing right back at me that's what's happening here Paul's calling out the religious establishment. I think we've all probably seen videos of the, uh, of the, the 
basketball team that inbounds the ball and and someone on the team gets so excited he gets the ball and he runs down he jams it in the in the hoop and only to realize he's just dunked in his own basket that's what he's saying you point the finger and say oh look at those pagans those those horrible people look at what they're doing and paul says you just dunked on yourself you just revealed by your own words of judgment. You've condemned yourself. You've, you've revealed your knowledge of what is wrong and what is right. And now, why don't you do that? Mm. This hits home, friends. This hits home. I want to be clear on the outset. We're dealing here with two different groups of people, ultimately. Those who are saved and those who are not. Those who are saved have experienced a radical change, a fundamental change. The myths are targeting those who are not saved. And the arguments of those who would say, well, there's something in me that makes me separate from the other unsaved. And the category is simple, unsaved or saved. So as we move through this today, I want to be clear, for believers, these things are different. That's not Paul's argument. He is presenting the case for us to say that all who are unsaved are in desperate need of the gospel. So when we say, I'm not a good person, that's, that's, that's radically changed. The good in me, the deepest good in me as a believer now is what? The righteousness of Christ. There's a radical change. It's no longer sin. That's not the core of who I am anymore. I've been changed radically. And I just want to say that up front because these myths might leave Christians feeling completely uh, lost. And, and, and that's not our goal. Paul's not saying this of believers. His warning here is for any who would look to their own righteousness and say, I'm okay. I'm a good person. And Paul's answer is, no, you're not. And your own words prove it. Hmm. Am I as troubled by my sin as I am by the sin of others? Now this works for Christians as well. That echo in us that would see the, the, the speck in the other one's eye and ignore the log in our own. That tendency toward hypocrisy that I get all cranked up about someone else's sin while committing the very same sins. Friends, I have been in counseling situations with people who are accusing, vehemently accusing their spouse of doing the exact thing that they're doing with their own words in that moment. It is mind-blowing how this can happen. So we have to be on our guards, even as believers, against this, this tendency to be more troubled by the sin of the world than by the sin in my own heart. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, listen to how it sounds for the, the religious guy. He stood by himself, away from all the riffraff and the sinners. And he prayed, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he begins to list, probably point, extortioners, right, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you believe this? Even like this tax collector. Well, why am I better? Well, I look at what I do, right? 
I'm so religious. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, all that I get. And I'm sure the list could have gone on and on and on. Self-righteousness. Is God impressed by that? Does that impress God? The tax collector standing far off, ashamed. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man who left justified, declared righteous, the one who was honest about his sin, honest about his need, who broke, was broken before the Lord and looking to the Lord for salvation. We bring nothing to the table, friends, but our sin. It is, it is such that qualifies. That's, that's why we qualify for salvation. We don't qualify because we're all shined up and, and amazing and impressive. We come because we are broken and desperate. Hmm. Look at the list of sins that Paul identified last week or two weeks ago. They were, uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Now, here's some of the sins that are a little more sanctified. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful. One of the quickest ways to identify self-righteousness is with arrogance. You can find self-righteousness in your heart as soon as you identify pride. As soon as you identify that inclination to say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that person. And then just, just call it what it is. That's sinful. That's horrific sin. The Pharisee is doing the same thing about the people that he points the finger at and says, broken sinners, thank you that I'm not like them. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, let's be clear. The list of sins may not be exactly the same. The category, however, is lost, sinner, unrighteous, Failing to qualify for, for, for any merit from God whatsoever. We, we are all of us sinners left to ourselves. But Paul, we Jews, we have the covenant promises. You, you're forgetting something, Paul. Don't, 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 don't leave this out. You can hear the Jews kind of answering back to Paul in this context. Hold on, Paul. What about the Jews? Of course we're better. God has chosen to make us His covenant people. We have the covenant promises. We, we don't have anything to fear. We, we can live as we please because when we die, we're His people, right? We aren't like the pagans. Paul absolutely blasts that kind of thinking. Hmm. Do you suppose, oh man, he goes on, when you see the old man, he's targeting that religious establishment again. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge, 
those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? There was a very commonly established belief in this day that the Jews were just automatically good to go in the afterlife because God had just chosen that they could live however they want and they, they were covered, they were fine. Paul says that's not true. Both the Gentiles and the Jews face judgment for the deeds they have done in the flesh. The conclusion is this, everyone is a sinner. We are not good people inherently. We are not born as good people. If you go to do some interviews on the street and you ask this question of people in our day, overwhelmingly the response will be, is, is everybody basically good? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the reasons why the Christian worldview is so radically different is we understand total depravity is real. It is the autopilot instinct of every single person conceived. It's one of the reasons why we need law enforcement. I don't believe that everybody is just inherently good. There needs to be some form of established law that is enforced because if you just roll it all back, guess what happens? Absolute nightmare. There are no good people. I stood right here about two years ago and did a funeral. This place was packed. And I stood and I said, I knew the man well who had passed away. He was a member of our church, knew him well. We were in Bible study every week and he asked me to preach the gospel so I did, and I just wanted to say, after 45 minutes of hearing what an awesome guy this was, I wanted to be clear. Yes, he was a wonderful man, but, but he was not a good man. He was not a good man, not good in himself. All of the good that we esteem here today upon his death is sourced where? From God himself. All of the good that he ever did points to the good one who showed him grace and made him alive and changed him through the power of the gospel. Preach that at my funeral too. Jeremy Pickens was not a good man. He was a saved man. We are all unrighteous before the judge. Friends, that is the reality. All of us here, left to ourselves, we stand condemned. Paul labors to make that point clear. And boy, by the end of this journey, weeks from now, we're all going to be feeling it really clearly. We're going to be like, can we just get to the gospel? Let's get to, let's get to the gospel, Paul. we got to feel that. Myth number one, I'm a good person. Myth busted. Myth busted. Okay? I don't have the noise, but I, sh I should have had that, you know, the metal thing landing in there. Let's go to myth number two. Myth number two, God isn't angry with me. God isn't angry with me. Listen to how these verses go. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, key word here, underline in your Bibles, circle this in your Bibles, repentance. That's the key word of this whole passage. Or do you presume 
upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Look at these words. The riches, that's a huge word. How has he shown his kindness to the ends of the earth? Right? Jesus said in his own words that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. That, this is the kindness of God. In fact, it's in the context of, of Jesus calling us to love our enemies. Think of this. He points to the Father's love for all around the earth, his kindness to them, his common grace. When it rains, the sinner's field receives the water as well as the believer's field. It's so easy to presume upon, to say, well, of course, I, I deserve that. Well, God has to be like that, right? That, that's who he is. Of course he's kind. Of course he lavishes these things upon us. Oh, he's, he's not that worried about my sin. Let's work this out. Hey, listen, man, life is comfortable. Paul, let's, I, I can live however I want. And it doesn't seem to be, you know, raining lightning bolts on my head. I, I mean, God doesn't seem angry. I, I haven't been punished yet. I can live a godless life. I can, I can do as I please. I can even blatantly sin. And guess what? I can have success in my business as I do it. My family can be happy. I can have a relatively wonderful experience on this life. Paul, you don't understand. God is kind to me even though I'm living in sin that's what he's getting at you see what you see that what that is his kindness to us in common grace to the ends of the earth has a goal what is the goal repentance repentance as god is kind and showers his rain upon the earth on even the field of the sinner and the blatantly sinful even those who know that he is and say, no, there is no God. Even those who walk around in self-righteousness and experience advancement in their careers. Those who, who, who do horrible things with their business practice, unethical things, and, and they succeed. In this, God is saying there is a desperate need for you to repent of your sin. He is not approving of the sin. He's giving you an opportunity see it for what it is and turn from it he has every right in the moment of your sin to take your life and sentence you to the fires of eternal hell that he doesn't do it is not our goodness but his what do we do instinctually in the face of this kind of kindness this slowness to anger, this, this bearing with us, even in the face of our sins. How does the sinner respond? Well, with a hard heart. That's how we respond, left to ourselves. That's exactly what we do all the time. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness and forbearance and patience has a goal that you would repent, but instead, what do sinners do? We say, sweet, I can sin it up. 
and not face any consequences. I guess he doesn't really care about my sin. And Paul says, wrong. You are storing up wrath. It's a deposit. Every sin is a deposit into an account and you are going to pay someday. I want you to think of it this way. Picture yourself building your dream home right about here. Okay? And your favorite thing to do every day, your hobby, the thing that makes you most happy is to get a jackhammer out. And your favorite thing after your entire career and your family and your house, it's all built, it's beautiful, it's right here. You jackhammer all day on that, on that wall. It's just so satisfying to you. Every day. It's like that. It's like that. There is coming a day when the patience of God his forbearance that holds back his wrath in kindness, not because you deserve it, but because of his goodness and grace. He holds it back and he holds it back. But there will be a day when he will pummel and pour out his wrath and you will have hell to pay. This is a loving warning in the book of Romans. It's love to tell the crazy man that builds his house at the foot of a dam and jackhammers all day, stop, what are you doing? That is not gonna end well. Don't do it. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man when Christ returns. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day they were eating and drinking and, and being given in marriage till the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it's going to happen again, believe it or not. Not the flood, but listen to this. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And Jesus says, listen, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Man, this jackhammer's awesome. Just loving it. And all of a sudden, bang. Judgment is coming. God's anger will be unleashed and His wrath will flatten the earth. And hell will burn with fire forever myth number two god isn't angry with me myth busted myth number three god won't judge me god won't judge me verse verse six he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and, and, and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking, self-seeking and, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Wow. Now you might think if, if these were the only verses in Romans, you might think that Paul is Catholic here. 
right? That, that he's preaching some kinds of, of works righteousness. That somehow we can merit salvation by what we do. That is absolutely not the case. We've got to always interpret Scripture with Scripture. His larger argument is going to build this out. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we understand that the only way that sinners will do works like are described in this verse, seeking glory and honor and immortality, is through the Spirit's regenerative work in them, right? To circumcise the heart. If that doesn't happen, our works are the second half of the verse. We will disobey. We will seek ourselves. We will obey unrighteousness. That's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? To obey unrighteousness. You almost have that cultural pressure there. Just, just cave. Follow the leader. Obey unrighteousness. Paul's basically saying there's two groups. Obedience or disobedience, eternal life, or wrath and fury. The works that come from the first group, they come as gospel fruit. The works that come from the second group, though, they come instinctually to us. That's just godless rot. It's a massive difference. Faith works. True faith, true saving faith is going to show itself in obedience, joyful obedience. That's why we always teach that Jesus is not just Savior. He is King, and He's commanded, and He calls us to obey Him. In fact, in just a few weeks, we've got seven people now, six, six or seven, that are lined up for baptism. I'm excited about that. You know one of the most simple commands to obey that Jesus has given us is to be baptized? This is one of the, one of the easiest ways to say, Jesus, you are not just my Savior. You are indeed my Lord. And I will obey you. And I will stand with you and identify with you and trust you in the waters of baptism. What an awesome thing. We will indeed be judged by our works. We will be judged by our works. Every single action, every motive, every thought will be judged. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Now look at how he does this. He's establishing his case. It's a comprehensive case. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Wow, what a statement that is. Now that statement is echoed in the book of James as well. There is no partiality with God. You see this in the Old Testament as well. What does it mean though? What does it mean? Here's what it means in this context. When he judges, he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't say to one, well, that's not a big deal. Let's just forget about that. Let's just sweep that under the rug, right? When he judges, he judges in perfect justice based upon what was done. In the flesh, the deeds. God's impartial judgment. It's good news for us because if he judged as a partial judge, if he showed partiality, if he was just like, well, you know what? These people I'm going to play favorites with. I'm going to kind of just sweep their sins under the rug. I'm not going to really worry about what you guys did. But over here, I'm just going to pour everything out on these people. Then we would have a God who is not good. We would have a judge who is not just. 
He can't be partial. God can't do that in his judgment. He cannot play favorites in judgment. Every deed will be judged. And Christian, here's the good news. The judgment for your sins are not swept under the rug at all. They are set upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ where they are judged with wrath and fury on the cross. That's the good news that we're coming to. I can't, I can't wait to get there, so I have to put a little bit in just to remind us of what's coming. Myth number three, God won't judge me. That as well, busted. He will judge every single sinner who does not look to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Myth number four, God can't judge me. Hey, I went to church and I know the Bible. I went to Good Shepherd. Hmm. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That word perish, that is an eternal word, right? John 3, 16, will not perish, but have eternal life. We're talking about hell here. Those who have sinned without the law, we're going to get there in a second, will perish without the law. They will go to hell without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or declared righteous. Again, don't interpret these verses in isolation. This is not some kind of works-based justification. Paul is going to build this out beautifully in the chapters to come. But he's saying, listen, there is a radical difference between hearing and obeying. But Paul, I, I, I studied my Bible. I did my devotions every day. I followed Pastor Jeremy through the book of Joshua, right? I attended Good Shepherd. I even made it through the Leviticus series, right? We should have shirts. I survived Leviticus, right? And Paul would say, hey, bravo, bravo. Did you obey it? Ooh. Friends, the purpose of the law is to reveal our sin. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law. We can't do it. That's the point. You can't keep it. The law has been, has been given by God to reveal His purity, holiness, and righteousness and our complete lack of those things. That's not good news for people who have the law. Now, remember, gospel, that's a different thing. We're not there yet. We're coming to that. We're talking about those who would say, well, I, I have the law. It's not enough to hear the law. Are we hearers alone or doers? It is dangerously possible to attend this church to come Sunday after Sunday, stand and sing, sit, nod, say amen, go home and do nothing with it and go to hell. Be warned. 
Be warned. Many, many will say on that day. But I went to Good Shepherd. I I survived the Leviticus series. I I attended Bible study. And Jesus will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Hear the warning now so you won't hear it then. We need Jesus today. We need repentance today. We need to trust Him today. Don't depend upon religion. It doesn't save anybody. At all. Myth number four, God can't judge me. I went to church and know the Bible. That is a busted myth. Very clear. And how many people believe that myth today? Just, we just got to be aware of that. Don't fall prey to that myth. You can go to hell singing songs about the Lord and completely lifeless. This other one, we visited in chapter 1, but we're going to come back to it here. God can't judge me. I never went to church and I never read the Bible. I, I never had a missionary come to my remote island. I'm good to go, right? Because I never had the revelation. God never opened that that opportunity to me to to have the gospel or to know the revelation of God. So I must be in good shape, right? Well, Paul already answered that in chapter 1, but he answers it here again. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also go to hell, perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Then he adds, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they, they do not have the law, he goes on, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Well, unmistakably, it means that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ coming alive in your soul, you're dead meat. You are going to hell. That's a sobering reality, friends. It's one of the reasons why missions matter so much. You can be condemned by conscience having never opened a Bible because your instinct to to esteem what is right and true and just, it's written on your heart. It's one of the reasons that even godless cultures have this instinct of what is right and wrong. Now, they may completely suppress that as we saw in chapter 1, but the instinct is there and it is enough in itself to condemn. The law is written on our hearts. Now, our consciences are not to be seen as authoritative, and they certainly can be seared over the course of sin, but never completely so. Never so much that you can say, I just didn't know. I didn't know that there was a God. I didn't know that He was good and that He was the Creator and and that I was accountable to Him and that breaking His righteous decrees warranted my death. No one can say that to the ends of the earth. And so we go with the good news of the gospel in an urgent way. 
because those who have never heard are perishing. They're perishing today, tomorrow, the next day. Hmm. God will judge perfectly according to the knowledge each sinner has and specifically for the sins they have committed. Ed Donnelly, this guy, man, I love this guy. I'm using a lot of his material from this sermon. I just loved his, his outline here, and so I, I, I kind of made it my own and adjusted it, but man, he, he just nailed this passage. One of the things that I love how he worded it here is he says, God's judgment is just. He is not going to punish you for something that you didn't have access to or that you didn't know. You will be punished for the knowledge that you have received, which means that there are different degrees of punishment in hell. So let's just be clear on this. We know this is true of heaven. Our rewards are going to be different according to our, our obediences and our walk of faith in this life. We're storing up reward, eternal, eternal rewards. And it's true in hell as well because God is just. His retribution against sin in wrath is specific to acts of sin. So don't just think, you know, as, as someone said, well, I'm going to hell, doesn't matter. I, I, I'll just send it up and do my thing because it doesn't know. Every single sin will be visited in specific wrath for that sin. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the sinner in hell would give anything to make his sin in this life one less. You feel that? There are different degrees of punishment in hell. Those who never had access to the Bible or heard preaching or anything like that, they're going to be judged in hell in a different way than those who had access to the Word of God, to the law, who heard and rejected. A much greater answer will be required for those who were given much, right? Which, by the way, just in a loving warning here today, to sit under preaching, to sing songs of truth, and to leave this place with a hard heart, you jackhammer in the dam. Let's be clear. Don't go another day like that. Make today the day you say, okay, that's it. I'm done rebelling. I surrender. I repent. I repent. You can store up wrath by hearing a sermon like this and walking out with a hard heart, shaking your fist. Ah, whatever. I don't need it. Don't do that. Pray, oh God, change my heart to embrace this. Myth number five, God can't judge me. I never went to church or read the Bible. Myth busted. You see what he's done? He is systematically taking away any excuse. All are without excuse. That's the conclusion he's going to lead us to when we get to chapter three. The question that begs at the end of this sermon is, who then is righteous? Is it the, the people who have the law? No, because they don't do the law. They don't obey. 
Well, what about the people who don't have the law, who never heard the law? No. They're a law to themselves, and they continue to sin. All are guilty. All are without excuse. And all are without hope apart from Jesus Christ. That's our gospel. Now, it may sound foreign to our ears, but it shouldn't. Not in our day. We need this, God. We need to be clear on this, friends. If we don't have this as a part of our evangelistic fervor, then people will not understand the glories of God's grace. It is truly amazing. And we are desperate without it. Our response this morning, how, how, do, we, how do we respond? One would be this. Put the crosshairs on self-righteousness. Target it. Search for it. Pray, oh God, open my eyes to see it. Christian, it's possible to have this acting in your life. Even as I preached two weeks ago on that sermon about how the world is, is so upside down and backwards, it's so easy to sit and say, Amen. I agree. Preach it. Judge those people, Lord. Those horrible sinners. And forget to say, Oh, but for the grace of God, go I. Pride. Pride. The question is not if it is in your life. The question is where is it expressed? Hunt it and kill it by the power of the gospel. Hypocrisy. You realize that all of us are to some degree or another hypocrites. We're all sinners. Even those of us who are saved. We're, we're saved. We're alive in Christ. We, we, we still battle sin. Target hypocrisy. Hunt these things with the Gospel. With the good news of the Gospel. Hunt them. They are toxic to your heart, Christian. They are horrifically impairing of your testimony hunt them down and then at the end of the day i think we land this way honesty an honest assessment what do i bring to the table lord i bring nothing i bring my sin i i i am not qualified i am not righteous i am not better i am the sinner like the tax collector on the ground, we humble ourselves before Him, bow before Him in His holiness and say, Oh God, have mercy on me. The sinner, have mercy on me. That's the good news, is that those are the ones He delights to engage in gospel salvation. And what we find is that that is indeed the work of God's grace itself. Last, repentance. Repent. It's the, it's the target point of all of these verses. Repent. Repent. Man, woman, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, free, anywhere on the earth. Everyone has this desperate need. Repent of sins and run to Jesus Christ. Make Jesus Christ your hope alone. He is the only salvation for sinners the world over. 
throughout all of time. He is the hope alone, and he is the song we sing forever. Great are you. Who am I? And great are you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tearing down any vestige of our confidence in ourselves. We thank you for lovingly shredding, eviscerating our self-righteousness. We thank you for Paul's just beautiful words that reveal our desperate need. Thank you, oh God, for the reminder that, that we are indeed completely without hope apart from you. Oh, Father, forgive us for this impulse to be more worked up and, and, and bothered by the sins of others than by the sins of our own. We thank you for the grace that you have given us in the gospel that would meet us in our desperate need and bring salvation. Jesus, thank you for taking upon yourself all of the sins of those who trust in you and, and paying them in full. Thank you, God, that we can be forgiven, that we can have the righteousness of Christ, an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness from outside ourselves, imputed to our account, infused into our very soul such that we can be declared righteous. Oh, Father, you are so good. I pray right now for any in this room who have yet to turn to Jesus Christ, to turn from their sins and their own way, their selfishness and, and obedience to unrighteousness, to turn to Christ. Oh, God, please stir their hearts to do so now. Open their eyes to see Jesus in all of His love and beauty and glory. And save, oh God, save. We delight in you. We bow before you humbly. And we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.